Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We were in Romans 12 a few weeks ago. We're actually going to pick up near where we picked up last time we were there, but in a completely different setting and subject. It's always cool to me how um, God's Word combines together, and whether you're looking at something um, in one subject area or another one, that you can find that they connect to one another. Now, I, I want... I kind of want to start today with some questions uh, because we're in kind of a, a strange middle ground of a season, right? And so we are past Halloween. We are not yet to Thanksgiving and Christmas is on the way. So just a quick, um, and I'm going to ask um, for the next couple of minutes, if we could turn off our judgment meters for a second. Y'all know what I'm talking about, like our instant judging that happens sometimes. And so I'm just going to ask a couple of questions. How many of you have already decorated for Christmas? Let me just see. Ooh, I see some proud hands going up. All right. All right. Good, good. How many of you would never, ever, ever in a million years decorate before Thanksgiving? Okay. Let's see your hands. See your judging eyes on those that just raised their hand a minute ago. All right. Luke, you have a say in when we decorate Christmas? Okay. All right. So Luke says he would never do it. All right. He doesn't really help a whole lot when we... You decorate. Uh, so really not there. All right. Uh, so it is kind of a weird time, right? And so it's, it's a strange time because some of you probably already have Holly or if you've got SiriusXM, whatever the Christmas radio station or you're streaming it through Spotify, you've already got that going. Some of you say, no, it's never going to happen. For me, it's a particularly difficult year with that because I'm a traditionalist generally. I don't like anything before Thanksgiving. I like to celebrate Thanksgiving. I like to have that holiday. But Thanksgiving's so late this year, right? That's a first world problem, right? It takes so long before we get to the turkey, right? And so I've been thinking about, and part of the thing of being in church, you always have to think two to three months ahead. So I've been thinking about Christmas for a while now. Um, Our senior adult choir has been working, Joyful Sounds, has been working on Christmas for a couple of months for their performance that's coming the second Sunday of December. And so we're already in that mindset. And there's a movie. You know, sometimes movies are questionable whether they're Christmas movies or not. You ever heard those debates, right? Like some people think Die Hard's a Christmas movie. It's all right. Some people think that, all right, um, like there are debates about those kind of things. Well, there's a movie that's not really thrown into Christmas movies, but there's some cool Christmas ideas in it. And so I thought it'd be good to talk about it in this kind of setting. Um, it's from one of my, it's going to shock people. It's one of my favorite author's movies made into a movie. Uh, one of the author's books made into a movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? And this particular scene happens after the children... Um, some of you, I, I just assume everyone has read or has watched this unbelievably important movie, but maybe you haven't, or maybe you don't know anything about it, all right? And so Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is about four kids that walk into a wardrobe, literally, right? Um, uh, like, when I say wardrobe, like old school furniture that has coats in it, and as they walk out the back side of it, they get on the back side of it, and they end up in a new land, in a magical land, a fantasy land, if you will. Um, the book has lots of symbolism throughout it. There's lots of things in there that relate to the Christian life. There's a Christ character named Aslan. There's um, there's discovery, and there's like the walking through the wardrobe. Most scholars, kind of Christian scholars, see that as a conversion experience, that they're entered into this new world. And when they get on the other side, one of the things that they've been told about Narnia is that in Narnia, it's always winter and never Christmas. 
It's always winter, never Christmas, which can, I cannot think of a more miserable description of life. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? I mean, I know people get excited. We get pumped about the fact that we may get .02 inches of snow Monday night. People, I'm going to go get my bread and milk this afternoon, make sure I'm all clear, right? Like, I know we get pumped about that, but can you imagine year-round, every year, always winter, never Christmas? Now, the point is, there's never hope. And this interesting thing happens when the four kids go through the wardrobe, they get on the other side, they're walking through this winter landscape, they see some things starting to melt, and they meet this guy, Father Christmas. And it's the first bit of hope that things are changing. And when Father Christmas meets them, he calls each of them individually there and gives them a gift that will be necessary for their adventure. And so, for instance, to Peter, the oldest, he gives a sword that he will lead the army that fights on. To Susan, he gives a bow and arrow and a horn that she can use in Tragic moments or desperate moments to call for help. And to Lucy, little one, this is Lucy, he gives a special healing ointment. Elixir that she can use to heal anything that happens. Spoiler alert for a book that's almost 100 years old. Um, In battle, one of her brothers is gravely injured. And it's in that moment that she uses it. So every one of them is giving something specific to them to use at a moment in their adventure together that will bring about success. They each have a role to play. This is obviously C.S. Lewis writing into this story a depiction of what it means in the Christian life That when we become followers of Jesus Christ, that we are gifted by our Father in order to have something unique and special about us that will be needed along the journey that we have with our brothers and sisters in this adventure that we call life. Now, most people probably don't think of that when they're watching and go, oh, that is a great discussion of the spiritual gifts that are necessary in the Christian life. But I'm a pastor. I think that way. All right. And so today we're going to talk about your role, your gifting, how you fit in the midst of our church. We started a series of messages last week that we're calling This Is Us. And we talked about the fact that we are having this conversation over the next few weeks about what it looks like to be a church. We talked last week about who we are, what is a church, what does it look like, what is its purpose, what is its reasoning. Today we're going to talk about your role in that, what it looks like, how you can find your place. And then next week we're going to talk about expectations, what you can expect from us and what we can expect from you as a congregation, what that looks like. But today I want to focus in really on your role in this church, in the church in which God has called you to be a part of. Who are we? What's your role? How does it play out? And we're going to do that today from Romans chapter 12. If you've got it open, read with me. It'll be on the screen. If you have an app, pull that up. Or if you want to, there's a Bible in front of you. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This is where we were a couple of weeks ago. I think it's interesting to remind ourselves that this comes right before it and then talk a little bit about it. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, 
I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed any longer to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Again, the first thing to notice in this discussion that about spiritual gifts we're going to talk about in a minute comes right on the heels of this summary in Romans 12, 1 of what we ought to do in light of what God has done for us. He reminds us that from the 11 chapters before, after we have heard what God has saved us from, he says, how could we hold anything back from him? That we should offer our lives without restriction to him. And we should do this as an act of worship because the gospel has shown us that he is worthy of our complete trust and devotion. He deserves everything we have in life. No holding back, no settling, but 100% moving forward. Reminds me of the great hymn, Jesus paid it all in that last verse. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. And so he says that in these first two chapters, that we ought to offer a living sacrifice, that our lives ought to reflect a gratitude for what God has done of serving him completely. And he will spend the next five chapters, the last five chapters of this book, pointing a picture of what it is for us to live a life that looks like that. And I think it's fascinating to me that the first place he starts is finding our role in the life of the local church. It's not incidental, by the way, because a life truly impacted to the gospel depends on us understanding our role, understanding our gifting, and living it out. This is a short passage. It's only six verses, which means it's not going to answer every question we have about spiritual gifts, about our role, about the Holy Spirit, about what that looks like. We can dive more deeply into that at some point. But I want to acknowledge on the front end, we're not going to answer every question you have about spiritual gifts today. We're not going to answer every question you have about the Holy Spirit and its function in our lives. We're not going to answer every question that may be around that. But I want to acknowledge that what we are going to talk about is the ways we can find our role specifically from our understanding of spiritual gifting. And I also realize that coming into today that we come from a diversity of backgrounds. Some of you grew up in churches where spiritual gifts were talked about all the time. Practically all the time you talked about spiritual gifting. For others of you, you barely had a mention. Or if they were, it was more kind of a theoretical sense, more than a practical one. Some of you were nervous already thinking, I don't know where we're going from this. One of the things I love about our church is that when I talk to you all, when I know you, when I get your spiritual backgrounds, one of the things that I love is I've, we've done our FBC DNA class over the last couple of years is to hear that we have people from all kinds of religious backgrounds. We have lots of people, obviously, from Baptist backgrounds. We're a Baptist church, but we have Presbyterian backgrounds, Catholic backgrounds, people that have no church background, non-denominational background, Pentecostal background. We have charismatics, non-charismatics, not really sure what those word means, amatics. That's who we are. And I love that diversity. But the reality is, what I want to do today is to talk about what Paul mentions here. 
In fact, I'm going to use, I'm not going to use the word spiritual gifts to talk about our overall concept here. Spiritual gift is a part of it, and we're going to talk about where that part is, but I'm going to use the word role. Because sometimes I think when we talk about spiritual gifting, some of you immediately go to a personality-like quiz. Or what you've learned when you were 12 years old, that this is my spiritual gift, and this is the only way I can operate for the rest of my life out of that. What I want to talk about is a broader understanding of our role inside of God's family. So again, only six verses, but in that Paul gives us some very important principles for how to approach this part of our lives, your role in this church specifically. Verse 3, it's fascinating where he starts. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. It's interesting that Paul starts his discussion of your role in the church with a description of how we ought to think of ourselves and a destruction of pride. Because he's basically going to explain if we're filled with pride, we won't realize how desperate we are for the spiritual gifts, our need for God. The gospel teaches us to think rightly about ourselves. The word sensibly here in Greek literally means accurate, like get an accurate depiction of who you are. Another word that could be used for it, get a sane picture of who you are. In your right mind, think accurately. So when we think about biblically, what does it accurately tell us about us? First of all, the gospel teaches us that we were so needy and helpless that God had to save you entirely through an act of grace by His power. And so the first thing that we have to understand is we can't think of ourselves too high. Because every one of us in this room was so desperately in need of salvation that God had to, in His power, do all the work by Himself because we didn't have the ability to do it on our own. If you had what it takes, Jesus would never have to come. He would not have had to die. He would not have had to drop an instruction manual or coaching tips or have church that we would just do it on our own. But instead, He lived a life that you should have lived. And then he came back from the dead, offering you this power of a new life. And that should permanently destroy any sense of self-sufficiency or pride in our lives. It should shape how you approach the rest of your life, how you serve in a church, how you serve in your work, how you live as a student, how you live in a family. Because you were dependent on God's grace to save you and you're dependent on God's grace to sustain you. So don't think too highly of yourselves. But on the flip side, it also tells us not to think too lowly of ourselves. Because God has saved you. He's put His Spirit in you and giving you specific gifts with a unique role in the kingdom of God. Look at what He keeps saying there. It says, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, most people think when they read this, oh, God's given some people a lot of faith and he's given other people a little bit of faith. And we base our opinion of ourselves on how much faith we might have. But the word measure here in Greek is not a word that talks about varying degrees. It's the standard. And what he's saying here is that every one of us has been given the same amount. Now, we've all been given the same standard of faith. And that is that God did it for us and he finished the work in Christ. And that faith makes us profoundly 
equal in God's eyes. Everyone in this room has been given the same amount of faith by God. That is that Jesus Christ has saved us. Each of us possesses the same righteousness as Christ. We are part of the same body of Christ. We have received the same spirit of Christ. We are as righteous as the most righteous saint that has ever lived in the history of the world. We are just as valuable as the godliest person you can think about because we have the same spirit from the same God through the same salvation as they do. Just as your place is not based on your ability, that godliest person you know, their place is not based on their ability. It's all the same. So don't think too highly of yourself. You are a desperate sinner in need of a God who saved you. But don't think too lowly of yourself either. Because through faith he's given you all his righteousness and he's put his spirit in you. And then Paul starts to talk about the gifts. He says there in chapter 12, For by grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed each a measure of faith to each one. Verse 4, he gives us what is his favorite depiction of the body, of, of what the Christ church looks like. And we'll talk about that more in detail in a moment. He says, verse 4, now we have many body parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Verse 6, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching and teaching, if exhorting and exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Now I want to talk briefly about a couple of those because some of them get misunderstood and then talk broadly about all of them. First of all, let's talk quickly about prophecy because people hear different things when they hear the word prophecy. Sometimes in Scripture, prophecy meant predicting the future, being able to tell events that were coming in the future like Old Testament prophets did. Sometimes it means speaking the very words of God, like thus saith the Lord. The prophet is the one that says, thus saith the Lord, and it's written as Scripture. Nobody has that gift anymore because the canon of the Bible is closed. Other times it would refer to God's proclamation like uh, the, the proclamation of God's word, like what I'm doing now, where I read the scripture and explain what's happening to you right now, right here. That's not what's in line here with prophecy either. What I think is understood as prophecy here, by the way, is that it appears to be when a word of encouragement or exhortation is given through the spirit from you to someone else. Or it's like, man, I just really feel like the Lord has laid something on my heart that I need to communicate to you, um, to encourage you in your walk, to tell you this is something you need to know. Sometimes it's a promise. Sometimes it's a challenge. Sometimes an exhortation to do what God has called you to do. It should always be done with humility and never in a way that applies that you are the authority. When Paul says prophecy here, that's what he's talking about. Because when he says it's an according to the proportion of one's faith, it means that in ways that go along with what God has already given you. There have been times in my life, I'm sure there have been times in your life, if you live in community, if you live in the body of Christ, when somebody's walked up to you and said, I just have a word for you and that God wants me to encourage you. Now we have to be sensitive to that. We have to make sure that lines up with Scripture. I've had people walk up to me and say, I'm not really sure why, but I... I think God really put this on my heart for you. 
There have been impactful moments in my life. There have been impactful moments in the lives of my family when God has used people within the church to come to say, hey, I don't know why, but this, I want you to know about something. Many of you know the story Susan and I have and um, infertility issues that doctors diagnosed and told us we had zero, zero percent chance of having children. And we were thoughtful in prayer and we were working with doctors and we were trying to figure some things out in our lives. And we will never forget how God used three separate people in our lives that do not know each other and are disconnected that came to Susan or came to me in those moments and said, I just want you to know I've had a dream and you were holding a baby. And those are specific words in that moment for that situation. And we will never forget. I mean, if you talk to Susan and I, we can tell you stories. We can tell you details around that. And just within a year, Eli was a part of our family. We look back on that and we're thankful to God that we have the people around us that were in tune with the Spirit of God, that were listening to the voice of God, and were willing to tell us what God had spoken to them. Paul goes on and says, if service, that means a sense of when and how to meet people's physical needs. That means where you see somebody in need and you have the resources, you have the ability, you have an extra ability to see that. Use it, he says. If teaching, it's explaining doctrine, that's explaining truth, that is laying forth the truth of Scripture, then in teaching, teach. If exhorting, that's calling people to obedience, that's more than teaching, it's different than teaching. It's not more than teaching. It's different. Teaching is more here are the facts. Exhortation is, and this is what you do about it. This is how you obey. If it's giving, and this isn't necessarily just for wealthy people, although it can be, it should be, if God has prospered you, but it includes people that just have a sense of things that are burdens on their heart and their desire to give. He says, if it's giving, then give with generosity. If it's leading, then do it with diligence. Make sure you're leading well. If it's showing mercy, working with the poor, the sick, the broken, then do that with cheerfulness. Now here's the thing. When people see a list like this, man, we love lists. The Internet's full of lists these days. Five reasons to do that. Top ten things you didn't know about this. Like, you can go through a wormhole on the Internet in a moment on what they call listicles. You know what listicles are? They're articles that are lists. They actually have a name for them now. People see this list, they're like, oh, I've got to find my place on the list. They treat it like some sort of Enneagram. They've got to figure their name out. Oh, I'm a leading with a wing of generosity. If you don't know what an Enneagram is, give praise to the God Almighty that you don't know. But what we have to understand is Paul is never intending to give an exhaustive list here. There are six places in the New Testament where lists like this are given, and none of them are the same. And no one list contains them all. And all 22 are listed. Paul's not trying to give you a comprehensive list and say, this is it, this is all there is. And if you're not on this, then you are not spiritually gifted. What I think he's showing here is that spiritual gifts are not tightly defined into this set of lists. In 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to them as spirituals. It's a word he made up. And here's how I would define it. It's a spiritual gift is something God has given to you in order to impact the world through his church. And sometimes it's a permanent gift. 
For example, I believe that some of my spiritual gifting is teaching and exhortation. I'm not asking for um, approval or emails telling me that you don't agree with that, all right? I hope that sometime during the middle of the week, nobody emails me and says, I don't know that you had it this week, Pastor. Like, I think that's my calling in life. But I also think that in different moments of my life, God gives me temporary gifts that help me in that stage. Does that make sense? So a few things that we learn about spiritual gifting and our role in this, and then we're done. First is this. Each Christian has a role. If you are here today, how many of you are here today? Okay, nine of you. That's great. If you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and this is the church that you call your church, then you have a role to play at this church. And that role is not just a role on the edges. It is a role that is important to the mission of this church, which is to lead people by to passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and in doing that, glorifying God through it. Whenever Paul talks about spiritual gifts in the New Testament, he speaks this way. Every follower of Jesus has a role. And so my question for you today, really the overall question, we're going to wind through a couple of things to get to a final question about this, is do you know your role and are you filling it? And sometimes roles change. Sometimes as life changes, roles change. Sometimes as priorities change, roles change. But are you fulfilling your role in the living of your life through this congregation for the glory of God? And let me tell you, I believe that nothing helps your walk with the Savior more than doing what you're supposed to be doing for His name through His church. God created you for service. He did not sanitize you to set you on a sanctified shelf. That was good. I don't know if you got that, but that was good. All right, I don't do those kind of stuff a lot. That was good. When I was in seventh grade science class, I had Mr. Webster as my teacher. Dyersburg Middle School, seventh grade science, and everybody loved when they got Mr. Webster. He's a great teacher, but he had a room filled with animals in formaldehyde, in jars. Anybody else have a teacher like that? Yeah, five of us. You see some of your hands, all right? And everybody was excited because you went in there, and there was a there was like a a, a a stingray in there. Like, isn't it crazy? I still remember this stuff. There was like a pig. I remember the pig that was in there. And they were up on the shelf, and as a student, you couldn't go touch it, but you wanted to be in the room with all the formaldehyde animals there. No, I creeped some of you out. Sorry. That's not who we are as Christians. God didn't sanctify us, put us on a shelf so that we're safe from the world for the rest of our existence. That is not the purpose. He created you to serve. He saved you to send you into the world to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And the way that he created you is to do that through a local church. Serving God unlocks the deepest purposes of your life and when you discover your role and you live in it then you will see your christian walk take off for some of you christianity is boring 
Your life basically consists of coming in here, have me yell at you for 30 minutes or so, and trying to get you to go home and, and uh, watch less bad things and cuss less and come to church more. And that's all you think Christianity is. That's because you haven't discovered the joy of living in the passion of what God has called you to do. When we come together as a congregation, everybody in this room offers something to us that we can use to impact the community and the world outside of this church. Secondly, no one Christian fills every role. You have a role. You don't have multiple roles. That doesn't mean you don't get to serve in multiple places. I'm just saying you figure out your role and you serve there. Paul's favorite analogy for the church is what? You know this, right? What's his favorite analogy for the church? The body, right? It's a great analogy. If Paul didn't come up with it, somebody else would have had to. But God gave it to Paul. And he says that if part of the body is hurting, if part of the body is off, then the rest of the body has to deal with it. I had my first cold of the season this week. And all I had was a stuffy nose, but the rest of my body knew I had a stuffy nose. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? You realize I have a stuffy nose right now because I sound like it. Like our body fights together, and if one part is hurting, the rest is. Anybody here had the stomach virus in the last couple of years? Does the rest of your body know you got something wrong with your stomach? Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Well, you ain't going, oh, that's my stomach's messed up, but everything else is great. And the reality is, if God's called you, and this is the determination you have to make. First of all, if you're a believer, God's called you to be part of a local body of believers. We call that church somewhere. If God's called you to be a part of this body, then we need you. We need you to fill your role. Just a month and a half ago now, we did a series of messages, started one called, Who's Your One? You know what I was overwhelmed with about that? That last week we brought the cards, put them on the stage. What I was overwhelmed with is I went through those cards. I'm, we're praying through it. We told you staff. We divided those cards up. Staff is praying through that. And as we prayed through that, as we worked through that, I hope you're still talking to your one. I hope you're still praying about your one. I hope you're still walking through that process with them. I hope you've had an opportunity to share with them. But I was overwhelmed to think, okay? We collected somewhere around 320 names. Can you imagine the impact if half of them came to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? And that would just mean half of you having the opportunity to share with them and God coming along and saving. So we think about evangelism, we think about outreach, we think about all that. And as a church, we have to think through outreach. We have to think through how do we reach to our community, how do we do that. The, the, the simplest answer we have is for you and I to do the role with those people in our lives that are already there, that are unchurched, that are unsaved. If we would each individually do our role there, then we would see God do a mighty thing. But we need each other to do that. That's one of the ways it combats our proclivity towards pride is that we constantly are brought together. And I just want to be real honest to you. I think one of the most valuable earthly gifts God has given to me outside of my wife, outside of my family, is this community of believers. 
I learn, I grow, I am sharpened, I am made better, I am reminded of my failings through this group of believers more than any seminary or college class or discipleship class I have ever been a part of. And that's the way it's intended to be. And I'm just telling you, if you're not putting yourselves in a position to be in a community of faith, more so even than this room on one hour on Sunday morning, I'm talking about if you're not in a small group, if you're not in a Sunday school class, if you're not meeting with a small group, we have small groups meeting off campus now. We have Sunday school class that meets here at 915. If you're not involved in one of those groups, then you are depriving yourselves of what can be the best tool God can use to shape you into the person he's called you to be. God has designed it so that we need each other. And you are incomplete. You are insufficient for living the life God has called you to live when you are not in deep, meaningful relationships involved with a group of people who are going after the kingdom of God together. I mean, there's nothing more disturbing or helpless than a disconnected body part. It's gross. If you were to walk out in the parking lot today and there was a finger just lying on the floor, you would not think, oh, that's so cute. Right? What happens to a disconnected body part? It dies. It shrivels up and dies. Bible says in 1 Peter that Satan prowls around like a lion looking whom he may devour. You know what I think is interesting about that? Other than that God, when he wants to pick Satan, chooses a member of the cat family. What I think is interesting about that is when he talks about how he hunts. Those people would have been familiar with lions hunting. How do lions hunt? You watch any National Geographic or Discovery Channel. Lions hunt how? They wait for someone to what? an animal to get separated from the group. They chase, they chase, they go after, and when one animal gets separated from the group, then they attack. Could it be that the enemy that prowls around like a lion for us is just waiting for us to get separated from the pack? Can I tell you what this passage teaches us as well? Third thing, that it is pride that keeps us from pursuing our role. Don't miss it. That's how he introduces the whole thing. Don't think more highly than you should. One writer has said that pride is the granddaddy of all sins. It is the root behind so many other sins. You're not submitted to God. It's because you ultimately think you're capable of making it through life on your own. If you don't pray and have fellowship with God, it's because deep down you're not desperate for God. You think you got this figured out. If a person's not generous, it's because they assume that the one primarily responsible for their successes is them and their financial management, not the Lord. If you're not connected to the church, it's because you think you already possess everything that you need to make life work. And that's even true for those of you that come to church on weekends, but never get involved, never get connected to a small group, never get involved in volunteering, never get involved in missions, never get involved in community. At the root of it is the proud assumption that you don't need the grace of God deeply and intimately to work in your life to do what God's called us to do. What he's calling us to do is simply to fill our role. Which is our last thing. My encouragement to you when we leave today is to find your role. And we're gonna, I'm going to talk in a moment about how to do that, but I want to be very cautious here because sometimes we give out tools or we give out ability to find these things that people get really excited about. Some people like go nuts excited about another spiritual gifts inventory. 
You have to be careful because they have limitations. I read this week about a pastor when he was a teenager, went to a church and they gave a spiritual gift inventory. And this was one of the questions. This is true. One of the questions on there was, if your left foot was possessed by a demonic angel, would you cut it off or attempt to cast out the demon? He was like, I reject the question. I don't know. What would I do? He said he got the gift inventory back and his spiritual gift was martyrdom. He said, what am I going to do with that? You just get to use it once and then it's over. And so we are going to give you a tool. Actually, when you leave today, you're going to get a tool that you can take home, that you can work through trying to find what does this look like? What does this role look like? I want to first give you a Venn diagram. And everybody said, woo that's what you said, right? A Venn diagram of three things that help confine your role. And you, you may not be able to see it very clearly here. It's kind of washed out, but up on the screen. There are three things, and this comes from uh, several places. I think it, uh, the first place that I've found it traced back to is precept ministry. But he says that where your affinity, where your affirmation, and where your ability meet is your spiritual gifting, or for what we're talking about, your role. So what does that mean? Well, your affinity is what you're passionate about. What needs am I drawn to? What kind of ministry feels satisfying to me? Reflecting on things that you've been really good at or helpful for or things that have drawn your heart. Sometimes you're aware of needs that others just aren't aware of. Sometimes, by the way, when you see something around here lacking, you see something at church like, man, why don't we have that? Why don't we get that? Why isn't this a part of what we're doing as a church? Why isn't that there? Perhaps it's because God's called you to do it. Instead of sending me an angry email about it, Ask, how can I be a part of that? I didn't get greeted like I'd like to walking in the door. Good, you're part of our um, guest services team next week. Awesome. What is it that you're passionate about? What did you like? What did you love? Well, I wish we had a stronger ministry to this group. Well, perhaps that's because God's calling you to be the one that heads up that ministry. One of the things I love, there's there's a group of people that started meeting today. Um, to pray for this service, to pray for our worship together. Meet at 830, um, just to pray. And that was started out of church members, has a passion for that. I I wish this was a part of what we were doing. And he started it. And Daniel's got it going, is going to have people come. And other people, Lance McKenzie has talked to me about that. And Daniel and Lance talked about it. And they are going to put it together, going to do it. They're going to wait on, hey, is there a formalized program the church can do with that? No, we're just going to get together and pray. And then there's ability. What are you good at? What do you have the ability to do? Hello. And what is your affirmation? What have people told you you're good at doing? You have to be careful with that because sometimes people tell you you're good at stuff you know you're not really good at. And being nice to you or whatever. What are you good at? Another way to think about this, and this is the tool we're going to give you as you leave today, is your shape. We've talked about your shape before. There's spiritual gifts. That's where those inventory comes. That's where you look at those listings that are in the New Testament. It's not comprehensive, but it's a pretty broad list. 22 things that are there. You figure out what is it that I'm there. Your heart, that's similar to what we talked about. Like, what are you passionate about? What do you care about? Your abilities. What are you able to do? What do people say you're good at? What are things that you bring to the table that maybe you know from your life you're just Those are things you can do well. Maybe that's a business side of you. Maybe that's an athletic side of you. Maybe that's a crafty side of you. That I'm just really good at that. Your personality, right? Like, if you're an introvert, God may not call you to be the person that is on the guest services team. If you're not somebody that has the gift of mercy, maybe you don't need to be in counseling, right? Like, 
your personality makes a difference. And then the last thing is, what experiences have you had in life? And how can you use them for His glory? I mentioned earlier the uh, diagnosis we got and we walked through infertility. And I want to just tell you that it's been amazing to us how God has used that experience. We laid that on the altar and said, God, if you want to use that, use it. To be able to talk to people that have walked through that similarly, be able to pray with them and help them in that moment. Because when they say, this is what's happening, we can honestly say, we've been there. What experiences has God given you where you can say, I've been there? What's your role and are you filling it? Let's pray together.